Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced at the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri country in Fitzroy, Victoria, and broadcast to stolen lands right across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. What does it mean when we talk of floods of migrants? Is it useful? Is it accurate? Or does it distract from the real floods, the disasters brought on by climate change? Lauren Pico is a historian and academic, and she explored this question in her recent presentation at the Historical Materialism Conference in Melbourne. The manufactured rhetoric of Australia in particular is a full container which is vulnerable to human floods of migration or of refugee populations. Um, And this paper would like to consider that in relationship to settler capitalism's material and environmental effects. I suggest that rhetorics of landscapes as containers are not abstract, but they create the terrain for human action, rendering the contingent as immovable laws of nature while actual capacity for human action is refused and rejected. This demonstrates the way in which attitudes about ideal landscapes and how landscapes work can function as structures of feeling, which Raymond Williams theorised in his work, Marxism and Literature. And these structures of feeling reflect how the neoliberal settler state reproduces itself in action through the language through which human and landscape relationships are expressed. So as an example, in October 2018, Guardian's Melbourne office published an article with the title Melbourne's Bursting, Why the Population Boom is dictating Victoria's election. It claimed that, and I quote, Melbourne is staggering under unprecedented population growth, a boom rivalling the gold rush of the 1850s and the populate or perish era after the Second World War, end quote. It suggested that population growth was such a significant problem that it, and I quote again, permeates almost every policy challenge facing the state. This was perhaps one of the most widely shared um, and referenced uh, examples of the wider reportage on the 2018 uh, Victorian state election. Um, but one of the things which dominated this, um, the way in which this election was reported on, was the concept of population growth as being unprecedented and using catastrophic language to describe a fearful outcome should it continue. So the language of a population crush or a city which is bursting, are particularly common here, as is the language of flood. So congestion in urban terms, and this is from, often from a policy perspective, but also in terms of, sort of professional discourses by planners and so on, is often represented through a common-sense logic wherein a city is understood as a simple container which holds a fixed concentration of people, whose movement can be represented through a network of metaphors drawn from fluid dynamics. When the container of the city is seen to be overly full, such that there is insufficient room for the contained population to flow in whatever way that flow is idealised, the instinctive response in this logic is that the container is now insufficient in size somehow and that either the population must be reduced or moved. The congestion cannon should be reduced through this act of decanting, dispersal or removal to a new container or a different container. This type of containment logic also functions at a national level, with urban borders and national borders are both understood as rigid yet fragile and embattled. 
need to be defended. They are firm, but they are also something which is uh, capable of being permeated, particularly, and that is uh, something which is understood as a catastrophic event and a risk-filled event. So borders in this sense require maintenance and intervention, and they posit the city and the nation as having these sort of fixed and arbitrary and immovable laws of capacity, which are sort of Newtonian uh, in, their, in the language with which they are described. So the idea that Australia, or that any specific individual Australian city, could be understood as full is particularly curious when, to put it mildly, when considered alongside the long-standing anxiety by the settler state around the idea of Australia as having an empty heart, having a large amount of land which is insufficiently used, and the historical recurrence of policies which seek to rationalise the use of lands which are imagined to be empty through preemptive planned construction, such as decentralisation. Such a narrative of hydraulic comparison, as I described before, where cities are like buckets and people are faceless molecules of water, is shot through with illusions and inaccuracies which present the products of deliberate decision-making by governments as products of nature and which deflect responsibility from the material impact of those policies. So with um, regards to Melbourne, when viewed through a historical perspective and with a focus on the wider material politics which are engendered by this rhetorical framing, uh, the exclusionary and violent impact of viewing Melbourne as a container can be seen a little bit more clearly. And... The site on which we're, giving, we're having these discussions today, um, I think it's important to consider that we're uh, in a, a part of Melbourne which was once considered to be um, the sort of epicentre of, of slums. And so a lot of the examples here I'll be drawing from, and particularly from um, uh, this section, draws a lot from Tony Birch's historical work, which is just as wonderful to read as his fiction, so I will recommend it in general, but... Um, so the use of fluidity metaphors to understand urban functioning has a long history which predates the colonisation of Australia. It emerges particularly during the Industrial Revolution era contexts which led to the development of modern urban planning as a discrete discipline where uh, containing uh, cities are understood um, as fixed, immovable and sort of perfect capitalist forms. So the rationalising logic of planning is one which seeks to improve the container. And in doing so, it draws from a military, um, the, the military experience and the military experimentation, which the British Empire in particular um, drew its experience in constructing new cities or reorganising cities, which were considered to be safe experimental sites. So this rationalising logic, like many other aspects of planning rhetoric, draws from this logic of overcapacity on one hand, is something which a city or a nation can be afflicted by, and underuse on the other. So in particular, the crisis of capacity in Britain's 18th century prison system was invoked as a rationale for transportation policy and for the establishment of colonies to contain populations that were considered as being excess. Those colonies were then in turn established on land which was demonstrably populated and which needed to be reconceptualised as empty in order to justify the expropriation. So this, uh, drawing from John Locke, this common law justification of the Australian continent as being in a state of waste, which is a particular legal term in this context, was due to the inhabitants of the land not cultivating the lands in ways which were intelligible due to, uh, by British property logics at that time. And this carries through in ideas of the settler state as possessing finite borders 
and fragile ones. The underside of anxieties regarding fullness is this fiction of terra nullius, of emptiness and waste, and the way in which even idealised urban flow are sort of haunted by these underpinnings of what it means for an ideal city to function on settled, in a settler context. So the ideological need to maintain this foundational myth is an ongoing one and it requires constant maintenance. And these logical chains are invoked to help us to uh, both explain and narrate colonisation, but they are focused on ideas of who and what kinds of bodies can take up space correctly and how they should be organised and distributed in space. So as Janet McCowan, Andrew May and Brendan Gleeson have all shown, the settler development of this part of Melbourne in particular during the 19th and early 20th centuries was tied to industrial sites distributed along the Yarra River and this sort of boggy, undrained landscape around the factories, which was less useful to industrialists, became the sort of unsanitary homes of the working class. And as Tony Burt shows in his, in his work on this period, um, the sort of anxieties about the insufficient flow of population was very much tied to the racialising and, sort of, frankly, victim-blaming poverty um, rhetoric around slum clearance, which emerged during this early 20th century. This sort of slum-clearing movement was associated with a positively constructed cleansing of streets, but also cleansing of bodies in those streets. There's one particular figure which... Um, or image um, in Oswald Barnett's work, um, The Unsuspected Slums, of two small, dirty-faced children, which was widely reproduced during this early 20th century, and used as a justification for the remaking of the inner suburbs, which created, so for example, the Atherton Gardens estate that we see, would see behind us if we had a window out there. So much as the hoddle grid itself, just to our left, I guess, was established as a regulating space in order to maximise the rational functioning of Melbourne, it was also established um, in order to act as a boundary, through a, a boundary for the new settlement. This boundary was one which excluded Aboriginal people from the economic heart of the, of the new settler city. And these, the language and the organisation of streets, the reorganisation of streets and houses on those streets was undertaken throughout the 19th and into the 20th century as reflecting a sort of hydraulic model of functioning. Populations are inert fluids which are meant to be contained. They are meant to move in a way which is conducive to the sort of nourishing um, products of capital. They're not meant to be stagnant. They're meant to continue to move. So this language creates circumstances where the organisation of space and the organisation of bodies can be construed as natural and thereby outside the realm of human action, on one hand, or as catastrophic as forms of virulence and flood, which need to be intervened on. So you can have the flow, which is natural, or you can have the flood, which is the threat. So this finitude logic of how humans react and uh, orient themselves towards space has persisted as the language of planning and urban policy throughout the 20th century, and it shaped even Whitlam's urban policy, even though this was directed towards a much more transformational logic of what it meant for a city to be. Um, you can also see it in Brian Howe's influence under Hawke and Keating, where he's very limited in influence in many ways, but which sought to sort of balance and moderate the excesses of what would become a much more marketised urban policy at this time. However, the language of, sort of scarce, embattled and fragile borders to cities and to the nation has made its most marked emergence in post-Howard LNP 
rhetoric and indeed during Howard, of course. So as an example of this, consistent with the sort of language of embattlement and militant border defence used during his earlier tenure as immigration minister, Prime Minister Scott Morrison made a speech four days before the 2018 Victorian state election, whereby he claimed that the Australian public had been saying to him, quote, enough, enough, enough. And I apologise, but it is useful to quote this here. The roads are clogged. The buses and trains are full. The schools are taking no more enrolments. I hear what you are saying. I hear you loud and clear. So this is a clear example of, end quote, so this is a clear example of what Andy Brown has called the political genre of anecdotal racism, whereby ideals are displaced onto these sort of either real or imagined constituents, and thereby they sort of displace responsibility for the content of the statement. I heard it, therefore I didn't say it. This is something which Enoch Powell was very good at using, for example. I've worked on that elsewhere. This also helps naturalise this sort of causal relationship being posited between urban clogging and population increase, and particular kinds of population increase. And it appeals to this sort of simplistic, accessible, metaphorical logic which suggests that, far from needing any kind of specialist understanding, that everyone has an instinctive knowledge of how cities work, of how borders should work. So this idea of full cities was considered by both state and federal LNP in 2018 as a potential justification for a kind of forced decentralisation policy which would involve moving migrant populations, uh, particularly newly arrived migrants, to regional cities. So I suggest that we can think about these kinds of flow logics and their longer history as having multiple functions. What is currently understood as urban congestion may be more, much more accurately characterised as the cumulative impact of decades of erosion of state infrastructural investment and the abandonment of longer-range planning, and particularly the way in which the admittedly very paternalistic and non-consultative model of state planning, which was in operation up until the mid-1970s, was not replaced by greater participation, but was replaced by neoliberalisation and the erosion of the state itself. And so by presenting this weakness and collapse as a natural collapse of a failure for money to flow, the implied solution then becomes more markets, And more markets mean more extractive capitalism on one hand and more neoliberal centralisation of wealth on the other. It means more bordering and more exclusion. This also means more of a logic where particular bodies are coded as being surplus, excess and outside. It also means more of a logic where the actual crisis, the actual crisis of flood, the cumulative environmental transformations of industrial capitalism itself, which are creating genuine risks of flood, rising sea levels, fire and drought, are deprioritised and written out of the political narrative and presented as outside of the realm of action. If we have a crisis of flood already, and that crisis of flood is about borders and bodies, there is a redirection of that attention away from material impacts of environmental catastrophe. So the ethics of considering the movement of migrant bodies as excessive capacity while using catastrophic fluidity metaphors um, in order to do so, while there are actual catastrophes of rising sea levels, water-based floods, as opposed to human-based floods, droughts and fires rage across the landscape due to the same settler capitalist state which establishes strong borders and not necessarily considered as part of a singular process as much as I think they should. Um, but when we centre this question of landscape capacity, it helps illustrate how bordering relies on conceptual divides in order to create material ones, in order to maintain them. 
and the, the framing of what is natural on an economic level as well as on a material level go hand in hand. And it creates a means of legitimising what is meant to go unchallenged, which is essentially the extractive capitalist border system. The idea of, of mining, for example, is a you know, longer version of this, which will hopefully eventuate at some point if I can manage to find some more time to write it. Um, I think mining is a really important part of this, that the fact that the Australian economy is so centred on literally extracting things from that are cont- imagined as being contained within the landscape and which are, in fact, finite, unlike um, the this, this sort of density and capacity of, of cities in, in the same way. Um, I think there's a relationship there which needs to be explored much more. So these cycles of border exclusion and the environmental impacts of capitalism are mutually reinforcing, but they share a language of being naturalised as if they cannot be altered. They're how things are, as we've already heard today. It's this, there is no alternative logic. Because settler capitalism is being framed as nature itself. So what I would suggest and how I would like to conclude is that structures of feeling around urban functioning are not neutral and they are not inevitable. They are contingent structures built of what Gramsci termed the spontaneous philosophy of everyday life. They are built through the words that we use. And they not only have a material impact, they create the conditions for material action. They form the terrain on which actions on bodies and on nature itself takes place. Lauren Pico, presenting her paper, Hydraulics and Flood, Rhetorics and Realities of Fluidity in Australian Cities, at the 2019 Historical Materialism Conference, held at Trades Hall in Melbourne. Listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. On today's show, we're debunking the rhetoric of scarcity and floods of migrants in Australia's border regime. The idea that a city or a country is like a container, that it can become full and overflow, is shared with eco fascist ideas of overpopulation. Nick Burrow is an academic and activist who has written on the issue of the far right and ecological politics in the era of climate change. I asked Nick about the shared lineage of ideas of population and carrying capacity in both environmentalist and fascist thought. We started by discussing the influence of the 18th century English economist Thomas Malthus. Malthus is really interesting. I think that's a really it's a really good good place to start and that Malthus's work is often ignored and sort of the subtlety of it. He was really concerned with not just, you know, ecological scarcity, but in a sense, an excess of human desire and ex- like this, he sort of, he made a distinction between civilized and savage life. And the distinction was that civilized life was uh, a sort of a life that could restrain itself. So, you know, it could, it could recognize that 
as a as a species, humanity could consume everything. It could destroy the natural world, but because it was civilized, it could see the damage it could do and would restrain its desires, just you know, restrain its consumption. Whereas savage life needed to be governed, needed to be controlled, or needed to be let die, needed to be abandoned to its fate when it consumed too much. And you know, I think that's an interesting element of modern environmental thought in many ways. I mean, I think an interesting example would be, say, George Monbiot in the UK. And he's written on more than one occasion that the main problem with, you know, say, climate change or environmental overshoot in general is that people refuse to restrain themselves and that if only people would restrain themselves, then the political will would exist in order to tackle climate change, deforestation, you know, the sixth mass extinction, the rest of it. But he identifies quite clearly that people and people's desire to consume is the core of the problem. And what's lacking is, I guess, in a Malthusian sense, civilised life. Within sort of eco-fascist thought, you can see how that's sort of taken all the way out. Like, actually, there's, there isn't enough to go around. There really, life itself does tend towards savageness. And the best hope for maintaining sort of existing qualities of life is really to ensure that anyone outside of the the nation is left to die it is a you know quite a, a, a it's a, a politics of abandonment in some ways or you know through sort of military excursions a, a, a politics of punishment in some ways for daring to be alive excessive too much that sort of stuff how that intersects with carrying capacity is interesting in that it's a, I remember back in sort of the early 2000s, there was like a lot of talk of carrying capacity as a environmental concern that was used to justify lots of Australia's border regime at that point. That Australia's a fragile economy, it can't support that many people, that actually we needed to restrict migration because there's only so many people the environment could, you know, sustain. Now, in some ways, that's a, it's just a, a classic reiteration of the sort of Malthusian distinction. I mean, it's also factually wrong. There is, there's nowhere in the world that, sustains itself there's no purely self-contained self-sufficient national territory even the notion of a national territory is kind of a, a bit odd there is no way that doesn't there's no place on earth that's not the site of multiple uh, you know more than human migrations of you know weather systems and uh, nutrient like corridors and patterns that crisscross national borders so there's no such thing as a self-contained territory but the idea that Australia could only contain or only hold so many people at that time started to give green legitimacy to the border regime. And you can sort of see how that then would um, ex- could, could be accelerated through the sort of Malthusian lens of civilised and savage. The idea that in Australia, you know, people will buy only ethical meat and have their, you know, hybrid cars and put their solar panels on and they'll do all the right things. But you know, these migrants who come here, they, they want the good life. They want to have all the, you know, the latest this and the latest that, and they'll buy too many things and they'll eat meat for every meal and, you know, all the rest of it. And that if they did that, it would be too much. And, you know, we can't trust that they'd restrain themselves like us because they're, they're from a different culture. They're a different people. And so I think carrying capacity is an interesting one that it's a kind of a, to begin with, it's a bit of a myth. It doesn't really, it's not really a, a very ecologically valid concept, but it really does give legitimacy or some sort of pseudoscientific legitimacy to the notion that a place has to be 
maintained or managed through some sort of civilized practice of self self restraint in order for it not to be denuded, and then that then further underpins you know some of the I guess what you'd call the the core state practice to be fascism, which is a militarized border regime. Nick Burrow, academic and activist working in the UK. And that was an excerpt from a longer interview with Nick from September 2019. You can find the link to that episode with the podcast of today's show. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's National Environmental Justice Program. I'm Tisha O'Hearn. The song featured on today's show is Get Fooled by Mojo Juju. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Or if you're listening via iTunes or any other podcasting service, why not rate us and leave a review? It helps spread the word. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on Wurundjeri Country. If you'd like to get in contact, you can send us an email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or send us a letter, care of 3CR. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.